I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. On today's episode, Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong, One Small Step for Man, July 1969, Darren Hinch was there at Cape Canaveral. Today we're going to talk about Apollo 11. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that takes us back to July 1969. 1969, yeah, the 50th anniversary was last uh, last July. And ironically, I actually talked to Buzz Aldrin uh, off air. He wouldn't come and do an interview, but he had a a good long chat off air, which is very nice, 50 years down the track. Darren, take us back to how you actually came to be. Uh, at Cape Canaveral that day. Well, look, it goes back to the 1950s. So I was just thinking about this, that um, when I was a teenager, um, they had these new things called astronauts, about seven of them, and they were in a thing called Project Mercury, and they sold their stories to Life magazine. Now, in a little country newspaper in New Zealand, I was we were running these excerpts, and I was mesmerised by these things because when I was growing up, we we used to get Eagle comics, and they had uh, Dan Dare was was our hero. He was a sort of a spaceman, and so I was fascinated by reading these stories in the nineteen fifties. And then in nineteen sixty, had the new president John Kennedy announcing that before this decade is out, we will land men on the moon and bring them safely back to Earth. Never dreaming in on the Taranaki Herald, and or before that, in the new, in a little new town called New Plymouth, New Zealand. Nine years later, I would be at Cape Canaveral, Cape Kennedy, to watch men go to the moon. And what had happened was I'd moved to um, Canada to work for United Press International. Then I moved down to New York and uh, to work for Fairfax. And ironically, I'd only been there a couple of months when Apollo 1 tragically caught fire, January 67, caught fire on the, um, on, on, on the launch pad and, and while they're rehearsing. And you couldn't open the, the capsule from the inside, and three of them, uh, Grissom, uh, Chaffee, and White, all all died were incinerated inside Apollo One. So I wrote that. I was based in New York, and I was writing that for the Fairfax papers. And then none of my colleagues seemed that interested in space, and so I put my hand up to go and do the the early space flights out of Mission Control. And so when Apollo Eleven came up, I uh, I covered the launch from um, from Cape Kennedy. So you were living in New York. Did you drive down to oh, no, Cape Kennedy? No, you didn't Kennedy. drive anywhere. You flew. Uh, you flied out of Cape Kennedy, uh, Cape Canaveral. The, the name's gone back to Cape Canaveral with the approval of the Kennedy family. After JFK's assassination, they uh, they turned it into Cape Kennedy. But then they thought, uh, with Kennedy's family permission, they went back. And now, I think, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying it's um, officially Cape Canaveral again. But it was an extraordinary time. I know, I know in the... In, that, that around the time I, when I was broadcasting for, for the Macquarie Network, it was one of my first ever jobs as a freelancer on radio. I was a print journalist. Um, and I said, oh, as long as I live, I'll never see anything quite like this one. And that's probably true. It's probably the, the biggest I've covered assassinations and whatever. But this was such an extraordinary story because we, at Cape Kennedy, um, we had to get out there the night before because we knew the traffic jams of, of sightseers would be massive. And in fact, a million people were around coastal Florida to, to watch the launch. And so we spent all night out at the, out at the launch site. Um, I was very lucky to be, um, to be in the p- press pool uh, 
to uh, stand probably up eight feet away from um, Armstrong and, and Collins and, uh, and Aldrin as they walked out in their white uniforms carrying their, their life support packs, probably about, only about eight feet away from them. Their, their families were there and some people were laughing and applauding, others were crying. And it, was, it was an amazing thing because they then all clambered into a, a little sort of a, a bus, a wagon, and were taken out of the launch site, which was three kilometres away or three miles away from where we were. But it didn't matter because there's nothing between you and them. They had a press stand where we were all ushered into and we were sitting. And uh, when it took off, I'm glad we weren't any closer because the I think I say on the broadcast, the lights of the stand were shaking and everything's shaking and the desks are shaking. And it felt like when, when the first raw wave of, of volume hit you, the sound hit you, it, I felt like I'd been hitting the stomach with a baseball bat. It was that strong. It was just like, <laughs> bang. And and that night, uh, when I finally got back after such an exhilarating day, I got back to my motel in Florida. And I'm having a shower because I've been up for about 48 hours. I'm having a shower. I look down. I thought, how on earth? I've got these big black stripes across my knees. And I thought, where'd that come from? I suddenly realized it had been from sitting at my desk at the launch pad and banging my knees up and down against the desk when it hit me, the sound, that it, it, it bruised my legs. It was just, that's how powerful it was. The sound, the noise, I mean, it sounded like a, a 747 on the roof. And it was just amazing, just an amazing time. So, Well, there's a 60-second there's a recording of you uh, <laughs> describing the launch of Apollo 11, which uh, we will hear now. And then I want to come back and uh, hear about what you remember about that that description. There. Okay. So, so uh, we'll play that uh, that that recording now. Now I'll give you the final countdown. Right, Darren, take it. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. We have the ignition sequence. Five, four, three, two, one. Good night. Darren, what do you remember about that 60 seconds? Look, funny enough, 
at one stage I'm yelling, as I was saying, you can probably hardly hear me, but I'll let you listen to the noise. Now, I was a, a novice at radio and I just, I was winging it and I just held my microphone uh, up to the, to the clouds and the crackle and the noise was just extraordinary. I mean, it was an incredibly hot day. I remember I could hardly hold on to my phone when I was broadcasting. It was that, the phone receiver uh, was that hot. Um, and the exhilaration, it was just, I mean, it was, as I said, probably, I think my first or second broadcast ever to Australia, and it was carried on about 50 Macquarie stations around around the country. Um, so as I said, I was naive about it, but it was just, I mean, you couldn't do it wrongly, could you? I mean, with, with, with that sort of material at hand, it wasn't exactly whoever did it. Well, it, well you would have been under a, a enormous pressure because you don't want to stop talking halfway through. Well, that's true. The thing was, the pressure was about four minutes. This was just part of a longer, that 60-second grab, as part of a, an, actually an LP called The Loneliest Journey and uh, put out by Brian White and 2GB. And about four minutes before the launch... He said, we're doing it live to Australia, and he was on air at the time, and he said, okay, over to you, take it away, Darren. And I got like four minutes of, of air to fill, and I'm just talking and talking and talking, and then I did a countdown to it and, uh, and got there. But the weirdest thing is, looking back on it, I sound terribly British. It does. Friends of mine didn't know it was me. I, I, I don't know where the, the accent, I sound like Richard Dimbleby, the old BBC commentator. <laughs> it was very strange. I don't know where the well, accent came from. You would have only left New Zealand not too long before that. So the thing about you is you don't even have a New Zealand accent. Well, I guess I left New Zealand for Australia in February 1963. And then I went back briefly in 65 to earn some money so I could go overseas. And I chased a woman to Canada, uh, as one does. That was my first wife, Lana. And I worked for United Press International. And suddenly in 1965, I'm suddenly bureau chief for United Press International in Toronto, and I'm I'm 21. Um, and then the next year, 60, early 66, they sent me to Kingston, Jamaica for the 66 Commonwealth Games. So here's this 22-year-old bureau chief suddenly covering the, an international sporting event in Kingston, Jamaica. But on my way back to Canada, I stopped off in New York and bumped into a couple of old journo mates of mine from the old days at the Sydney Sun, and one of them, Fairfax, said, listen, would you like a job? And it was actually paying me less than I was getting in Canada, but to work in New York for, for Fairfax and become a, a genuine foreign correspondent, it was too good to pass up. And I, I was there about 11, 12 years covering North and South America, chasing Ronnie Biggs all around Brazil and covering um, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, Martin King's assassination, Watergate, all those sorts of big stories. So uh, I never regretted making the move. So July 1969, when you uh, described the uh, the big Saturn V rocket taking yeah. off, you were what about 26 years old? Oh, yeah, 269. I would be uh, 25. Yeah, 25. So if you close your eyes now, Darren, yeah, and take your mind back to that day when the rocket took off, do you remember what was around you? Uh, what was the scene? How many? Oh people? yeah, look, it was it was it was packed with people. As I said, it was. Incredibly hot. The foam was so hot I could hardly hold it. Um, the this is a makeshift wooden stand uh, where, like an old football stand, where we had skinny little desks for all the the journo's who were there. Might have been in in the stand. There might have been a hundred of us, I imagine, um, sitting there looking out straight across at the uh, at the rocket, um, which was gleaming this white, huge rocket. I mean, I mean, it's the height of a thirty-five story building. 
know, it's, it's a, it was a huge rocket. Um, and watching it take off, I remember it looked like it wasn't going to make it. It's sort of like so slow. And it was just rumbling and slowly, and suddenly you saw the flame. We see the flames coming out and the smoke coming out, and it started to rumble aloft, and it went very, very slowly. And then, with all these amazing flames underneath it, and then it just and then it just took off into the sky. Um, and it was it was it was amazing time. Years later, I went to another Apollo launch, a totally different one, obviously. Um, and it was a, 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 a nighttime launch. They launched about midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And literally, it turned night into day. The actual flames from the the spaceship, the spacecraft lifting off, just turned the whole area where we were suddenly became like it was the the biggest, most massive flashlight in the world. Turned the sky all around us into day. Uh, the other thing you remembered was the noise. Um, people just screaming, "Go, go, go, go!" And I remember now from when if you hear back that broadcast. I stumble at one stage. I'm saying, "Go, go, go! You, you're." I almost used the F word. I just stopped myself <laughs> at the last second and said, "I think I said it's an ab- absolute beauty." When I actually want to say it was an effing beauty. So, <laughs> when you say it looked like it wasn't going to make it, uh, of course we look back now and it did make it, and and is all that certainty of it. But back then, you know, rockets were exploding on launch. So yes. there was no guarantee these guys were going to survive. No, that, no that, that is true. And that was why you had some tears when we looked, watched them going out there because they were going into the unknown. And as we found out later, and we'll talk about down the track, about Apollo 13. I mean, they only just got back, only made it home. Um, in one way, looking back on it now, I think Apollo 11 showed what American computers could do. Um Apollo 13 showed what American ingenuity could do to get them home from a quarter of a million miles away. And, of course, we'd had the three deaths uh, of Apollo 1, so that was very much in people's minds. We hadn't had the, the, the Challenger disasters uh, by then, of course, but the, 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 the cosmonauts had died in space um, from the Russians, so you, you knew it was dangerous, and they knew it was dangerous, but it was just extraordinary. I remember we always used to, I, was, I was at Mission Control for a lot of space shots, um, and I remember being down there to cover one. I can't remember which number it was now. And I used to have a holiday in on NASA Boulevard One uh, near, near Mission Control. And I'd been filing. I was filing for the Sydney Sun, two two cycles. I was filing for the Sydney Sun at one day, one stage of the day, and the Sydney Morning Herald at another. And I wander back to my hotel uh, and I kind of a beer before I go to bed, about ten o'clock, eleven o'clock one night. And the only person, there were two people in the bar. And when I ordered a beer, the guy at the bar said, oh, you're an Aussie. You're an Aussie. And I turned around and said, let's have a beer with the Aussie. And I turned around and it was, it was, it was Buzz Aldrin and, and his wife. Uh, he was very pissed and his wife said, come on, Buzz, time to go home, time to go home. <laughs> he said, no, I have to have a beer with my Aussie. I'm a friend of the Aussies because they had done the world tour and all the famous stuff about the lights of Perth, turn them on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had a very funny time together there for about half an hour at the Holiday Inn on NASA Boulevard 1. You you mentioned about uh, filing back to uh, Australia. Mm. You know, nowadays uh, it's all done by computer. You'd send an email. How did you do things then? Well, ironically, young people today won't believe the word what I'm saying now. They wouldn't even know what a telex machine was uh, or a teleprinter. But your copy got handled so many times. Like sometimes uh, when you're traveling in South America or, or say, in, in Houston, um, you'd write your story. 
you then phone it to uh, um, a copy taker in New York. Sometimes you'd phone it straight through to a copy taker in Sydney, but it's very expensive. So you'd phone it through to a copy taker in New York. The Reuters person then would type it again into a teleprinter and or a telex machine and send it off to Sydney, where it would go to a sub-editor, who might edit it a bit, and he or she would then give the copy to a, a linotype operator who would type it again. So stories could be typed three or four or five times before it got there. I mean, and, and you were... The joke we used to use at the time was we, if we, we, we thought we were in some godforsaken little town somewhere, our insult was we refer to it as a one telex town. <laughs> because, and, and filing was, the, the bane of your life was worrying about getting your copy through. Because sometimes the, the copy takers would have got an hour's worth of tape because they typed it onto a tape, which is then fit into a machine in those days. Um, and this idea now of everybody filing direct and 24-7 was just unheard of. I mean, I remember actually writing a story for the Sydney Morning Herald about this new invention called a telex machine. You know. How long did that take? So you filed, and it went through all of these different people to, uh, to get onto the paper. Uh, you know, if something happened now, how long would it take to be... Oh, no, if something, if something big paper. happened now, say somebody was shot or something blew up, uh, you'd phone. You'd just phone straight through to a copy taker in Sydney on the desk there. And you'd, so you'd, you'd cut out the middleman, you'd cut out New York, and you'd cut out your own office and just go straight through. But that was rare. Usually you'd have to rely on a couple of hours to make sure that your copy got there in time. That's quite amazing, isn't it, given mm. how quickly things move around the world uh, now. Back to Apollo 11, uh, Darren, after it took off, it, it didn't just go straight, you know, quickly within a couple of hours. To the, there was two or three days of travel yeah. to get to the moon. What did you do in those two or oh, three we, we days? We filed all actually... the time because you're sitting there, you're sitting there and uh, you've got your headphones on in, in the press room at Mission Control and you're hearing that all the, all the lingo going back and forth, back and forth between Mission Control and, and, and the Apollo 11 crew. Um, sometimes they would they'd cut you off because they want to talk uh, quiet medical stuff to, uh, to, um, to, to the crew. Uh, we get a medical report. So we, we, but not very often. Most of it we heard. I mean, I'll tell you later on that you know, Apollo 13, I heard that Mission Houston got a problem. I heard that on my headphones the second it came through. Um, but all the time, there's stuff to file, you know, what they were doing and how they're filling their time, experiments they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I remember there was, um, oh, it was one of, they let one of the medical calls go through and one of the Apollo 11 astronauts was complaining that, um, that um, I think that whatever he was eating, Heinz, Heinz makes your farts or something. <laughs> he was worrying about his wind problems and suddenly that appeared in the press room, some big sign up saying, Heinz makes your farts. You know, so. well, uh, it's a very confined space, uh, Derek. Yeah. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been the only one. No, he wouldn't be the only one. That's true. That's the thing, how small it, how small it is, um, the confined space, and especially the lunar lander, the eagle. Now, I was lucky enough on the last, I think it was Apollo 17, I was allowed to go into mission control and uh, and in, into and, and dummy land a lunar lander, uh, it, and it is so tight, it's so small. Now there's the argument going around now some on some podcasts saying that um, that, that uh, you know Armstrong was always meant to be the um, the first person on the moon. Well, back then 
the, the stories I was told at, in Houston and, and from some astronauts, etc., was that um, Buzz Aldrin almost didn't go on the trip because he'd, he'd trained to be the number one person out uh, uh, to, to pave the way for, for, the, for, the, for Armstrong, who was the mission controller. Um, but at the last minute, this is what we were told back then, 50 years ago, that President Nixon wanted a civilian pilot to land first. It would look better, a civilian astronaut. It would look better if it wasn't a military man landing on the moon first. And Aldrin balked, supposedly, and his father, who was also in the military, said, son, you are a member of the military forces. The president's your commander-in-chief. You will do what you are told. And that's the way That's the way it happened in the end. It was Armstrong who put the first first moon boot on the, on the lunar surface. Uh, there were some crucial moments during that, uh, you know, uh, that uh, voyage, mm. uh, and that was when the lunar lander broke away from the main spaceship. Michael Collins was mm. the astronaut who stayed there. Now, it took 13 minutes from memory, I think, to go from uh, breaking away from the main uh, yeah. spaceship to the lander hitting the moon. Uh, am I right when I say yes, that? Yes, you are. And it? also, it got very doughy. We didn't know this at the time. It didn't come through to us. But um, Armstrong landed it manually. Um, something went wrong. And in the end, he uh, and there were only about, only about 40 seconds of fuel left or something like that. And Armstrong took over. And made a manual landing he on the lunar surface, and that at, um, and that's where he had Tranquility Base. He said the Eagle has landed, but apparently it was very hairy around that time. And just imagine if you're Michael Collins, who's you're alone, quarter of a million miles from from Earth, and you're going on the dark side of the moon, so it's pitch black, and you're alone. I think that's why um, Brian White called the album the loneliest journey because it was extraordinary. And the thing was, of course. If something had gone wrong, if if, if um, Armstrong and, and, and Aldrin couldn't get the lunar lander off, nothing could be done. There couldn't have been time to send a rescue mission. Um, the the uh, the main spaceship wasn't equipped. It couldn't swoop down and pick them up or land or anything like that. So they would have died. And one of the most touching things, which I found out later, um, and I mentioned it in my book and Human Headlines, I mentioned that book, is that the speechwriter, uh, William Sapphire, was a speechwriter, becoming a famous columnist. He was a speechwriter for Richard Nixon. And that speech that he said, you know, we came in, we came in peace for all mankind and et cetera, et cetera. Um, the weirdest thing was that uh, he actually wrote two speeches for Nixon, one if they landed successfully and two if they died on, on the, and, and were left to die on the lunar surface. And the speech by... Uh, uh, written by Sapphire for Nixon, if they died, would make you cry. It was just so eloquent and so wonderful. Um, there's one other thing I've got to tell you about about the Apollo 11. Uh, I, I actually mentioned this when I was in the Senate, and the Prime Minister called me in and, and said, what was that all about? Um, it was during the, um, the Gonski um, education uh, saga, right? And finally, uh, I voted in favour of the of the, the Goldsky report, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in my speech, I, uh, I, I my speech to the Senate floor, I said with apologies to to Neil Armstrong, um, good luck, Mr. Gonski. 
And the PM, was Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister at the time, when he called me, he said, what the hell was that about Mr. Gonski and Neil Armstrong? And I said, well, there's a, there's a famous story going around. You can Google it, and anybody can today. And it's got more than millions of hits of it. Um, that something that, that Neil Armstrong's speech, We Came in Peace for All Mankind, was actually edited. The CIA edited it so that it wouldn't get out. Because he allegedly said at the end of his speech, We Came in Peace for All Mankind, and good luck, Mr. Gorski. All right? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, the story is, and, and I told the story to the PM, uh, I didn't tell it on the Senate floor, I can tell it here. Um, allegedly, Neil Armstrong came from the Midwest, I think from Ohio, and um, when he's about 10 or 11, he kicked his football over the fence into his neighbour's place, and he lived next door to Mr. and Mrs. Gorski. <laughs> right? And his football landed under the open bedroom window, and he overheard... He overheard Mrs. Gorski saying to her husband, give you a head job. Listen, when that skinny kid next door walks on the moon, I'll give you a head job. <laughs> and so Armstrong supposedly said, and good luck, Mr. Gorski. Uh, the CIA took it so seriously, they thought it might have been, it might have been said that it might have been some Russian plant. And, and if you, go, you go, go to Google and here it is. Anyway, I tell the story to the Prime Minister of Australia and he looks at me and he says, is that true? Because it's not true, I said. And then, to his credit, he said, oh, I wish it was. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Now, uh, I'm interested, Darren, where you were when uh, uh, Neil Armstrong walked down those steps and said those famous words. Actually, we're, uh, my, our, our bureau chief had moved, had, moved back to, had moved to Houston. I was in Cape Kennedy. He moved to Houston, and I was actually in New York City. Uh, when he actually walked down down the stairs, uh, and I was glad I was because about two days later, after covering him, you know, we covered off television, etc. Having covered him taking those famous steps, um, I was in a car racing to Chappaquiddick because Teddy Kennedy had just drowned Mary Jo Kopechny, and so I was so I was pulled off the uh, the moonshot uh, in the latter stages to uh, to cover the Kennedy story out of out of Chappaquiddick in Rhode Island. And, of course, they, they did walk on the moon. Neil Armstrong mentioned those uh, famous words. And then they came back to uh, Earth yeah. and they went on a, a tour around the world. Yeah, they, they spent about um, a month, in, about three weeks, four weeks in, in, in talking about coronavirus. They spent four weeks in isolation, uh, three weeks, because they were scared they may have brought back some you know, exotic diseases. Um, so they spent, I think, three weeks in, in isolation. Then they went on that one-year world tour, which was, which was amazing, um, what, what they did. And, and I remember um, you know, Alden saying to me, we really brought that night in the pub, he said, we really brought the world together. We really brought the world together. And, and they did. I mean, there were people who still believe that it was, um, that it was actually filmed in the desert in, uh, in, 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 in Nevada or somewhere, but uh, it, was extra it was an extraordinary, it was an extraordinary time. And I, would have, I thought, being wrong, I thought we would have gone back and, and, and colonised the moon decades ago. The fact that we have not been back to the moon in more than 50 years really surprised me and still surprises me, although there are plans for the Americans to go there in a couple of years' time. You have interviewed Buzz Aldrin uh, 
a couple of times, I think, yeah. and you had that uh, interaction with him in the in the pub, in the hotel, in the bar there. And Neil Armstrong and Michael Collins, did you ever speak to those uh, guys? Only briefly at press conferences when, before they went, uh, never one-on-one. Uh, I'll never forget the Buzz, Buzz Aldrin because, for other reasons as well, because um, I was on the death of Neil Armstrong, I, I planned to go over there for the anniversary and take Darren James with me, actually. We're going to go over there, and he's a space buff, and try and do a doco um, on, because having been there 50 years ago, it would be great to go back to Cape Canaveral and back to Mission Control. Uh, but then Armstrong died under anaesthetic, having a, a fairly minor operation. And the day he died, I got the only interview with Buzz Aldrin in Australia because we had his business card um, still and his phone number. Um and like we had a great interview because, I mean, here's somebody who was there so we could talk about the old days. But I remember it even for other reasons because when it was like the interview was over, it went to air very well, about 20 minutes, I think. And then after my show was over, after drive was over on 3AW, I was walking back to my office and somebody said, oh, the general manager wants to see you in his office. I thought, oh, it'd be nice to go. And you're obviously going to congratulate me on what a great get it was interviewing Neil Armstrong, <laughs> interviewing Buzz Aldrin. And I walked in and he said, you're fired. I decided to, 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 to let you go. And so that, that was my last famous interview was Buzz Aldrin. I, I stayed on there for a couple more weeks, but uh, but that was it. So I'll, I'll never forget my interview with Buzz Aldrin because that was the day I was taken into the, editor, the uh, general manager's office and said, uh, you're out the door. Darren, <laughs> when you look back all these years later, uh, what's, what's your thoughts about uh, mankind going to the moon? Look, it was uh, people, and the future, look, I people guess. People said, oh, all that money, you know, they spent $20 billion just so people's eggs won't stick in the mornings because um, Teflon came out of the space program. Uh, so did a lot of other things. Look, it's, it's what man has always done. Whether you're Christopher Columbus or Neil Armstrong, that's what we must always do. I mean, I think the idea that brave men are going to go to Mars is fantastic. It's out there. It's there to be explored. You know, we for all those... Some people still believe that the Earth is flat, but for all those years, people thought so. And uh, maybe you know, Australia wouldn't be what it was, would be today if we hadn't had that that spirit of adventure. If Cook hadn't, you know, gone to the edges of the Earth, so to speak. And so, man will man will always do that. Man and women will always do that because that's it's in our nature uh, that we that we explore the extremes. We we push the envelope, and uh, it's going to be so exciting when uh, when men do go to Mars because the ones who decide to go, the way I'm reading it, won't come back. You know, they'll be, they'll be committing their life to going to Mars and staying there. So and that is extraordinary. That's like something out of the, uh, the Eagle comics I mentioned earlier. You uh, have wonderful memories of that time. Darren, did you bring anything tangible back, something that uh, I, reminds I, okay. you? Okay, I, I had a pair of pewter Apollo 11 cufflinks given to me by Neil Armstrong, right? Um, and when I was when I uh, developed cancer um, before the liver transplant, I, um, I bequeathed them to Darren James, my former panel operator and uh, 3AW broadcaster. And to his credit, when it, when it was announced like I was maybe going to die, he asked me if I wanted them back. And I said, no, no, I gave them to you. I bequeathed them to you. Take them now and keep them. And he, and he, and he still has them. I also have a, a signed copy of a, a book of which uh, Norman Mailer wrote the art of the book. It's a massive book. Um, it's, it was only, they only printed 1,969 copies because of 1969, and it's signed by Buzz Aldrin. 
and it, I think it costs about $1,500, but I've got one of those as well. So, uh, but that's it. But you bring back memories. I mean, there's one thing that the astronauts, the image was always the astronauts were all, they had a goody two-shoes. Well, they weren't. I mean, they, they drove fast cars when they're away from their wives in, uh, in Cape Canaveral uh, down there in Florida. Some of them were wild men, you know, they were, they, we used to refer to astronauties because they were groupies. <laughs> There are groupies who would throw themselves at, at the astronauts. You know? um, and the thing was, it was meant to be such a clean, clean image that none of them, you, you, some divorces happened, but only after they'd come back from, from space because the idea of a divorced astronaut wouldn't go down well at mission control. I mean, they really had this image thing. And so um, even though wives sometimes knew what was going on, nothing, the breakups didn't happen until much, much later. And they had these very, well, yeah. They were the they were the rock stars of the of yeah, the time, yeah. really, weren't they? Oh, they were indeed. Yeah, they were. They were well. They were brave. They were heroes. They they drove fast cars. They flew fast planes. You know, and they uh, and they got on. You're suddenly sitting on the on the on the top of thirty five stories up on the top of a rocket that can blast you to death. Um, pretty brave. Well, Darren, this is our first uh, podcast. You've had a remarkable life, and I look forward to uh, talking to you about the other things that have happened in your life. A couple of other things that have gone on. Yeah, Tony, this is great. I'm enjoying doing it, and uh, I look forward to next time.